reading from Luke 16. He also said to the disciples, there was a rich man who had a manager, and charges were brought to him that this man was wasting his possessions. And he called him and said to him, what is this that I hear about you? Turn in the account of your management, for you can no longer be manager. And the manager said to himself, what shall I do since my master is taking the management away from me? I'm not strong enough to dig and I'm ashamed to beg. I have decided what to do so that when I'm removed from management, people may receive me into their houses. So summoning his master's debtors one by one, he said to the first, how much do you owe my master? He said, a hundred measures of oil. And he said to him, take your bill, sit down quickly and write 50. Then he said to another, and how much do you owe? He said, a hundred measures of wheat. Then he said to him, take your bill and write 80. The master commended the dishonest manager for his shrewdness. For the sons of this world are more shrewd in dealing with their own generation than the sons of light. And I tell you, make friends for yourselves by means of unrighteous wealth, so that when it fails, they may receive you into the eternal dwellings. One who is faithful in very little is also faithful in much, and one who is dishonest in very little is also dishonest in much. If then you have not been faithful in the unrighteous wealth, who will entrust to you true riches? And if you have not been faithful in that which is another's, who will give you what, that which is your own? No servant can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. The Gospel of the Lord. Praise, Praise to you, Lord Christ. The Pharisees, who are lovers of money, heard all these things, and they ridiculed him. And he said to them, You are those who justify yourselves before men, but God knows your hearts. For what is exalted among men is an abomination in the sight of God. The law and the prophets were until John. Since then, the good news of the kingdom of God is preached, and everyone forces his way into it. But it is easier for heaven and earth to pass away than for one dot of the law to become void. Everyone who divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery, and he who marries a woman divorced from her husband commits adultery. There was a rich man who was clothed in purple and fine linen and who feasted sumptuously every day. And at his gate was laid a poor man named Lazarus, covered with sores, who desired to be fed with what fell from the rich man's table. Moreover, even the dogs came and licked his sores. The poor man died and was carried by the angels to Abraham's side. The rich man also died and was buried. And in Hades, being tormented, he lifted up his eyes and saw Abraham far off and Lazarus at his side. And he called out, Father Abraham, have mercy on me and send Lazarus to dip the end of his finger in water and cool my tongue, for I am in anguish in this, in this flame. But Abraham said, Child, Remember that you in your lifetime received your good things and Lazarus in like manner bad things, but now he is comforted here and you're in anguish. And besides all this, 
Between us and you, a great chasm has been fixed in order that those who would pass from here to you may not be able and none may cross from there to us. And he said, then I beg you, Father, to send him to my father's house, for I have five brothers, so that he may warn them, lest they also come into this place of torment. But Abraham said, They have Moses and the prophets. Let them hear them. And he said, No, Father Abraham, but if someone goes to them from the dead, they will repent. He said to him, If they do not hear Moses and the prophets, Neither will they be convinced if someone should rise from the dead. The Gospel of the Lord. Praise to you, Lord Christ. As we stand, let's pray. Almighty Father, um, we're, uh, we need to talk about some things that um, uh, we don't really want to talk about all, all very often. Um, and uh, there's in all of us, uh, so some of our hearts um, are not at all sure that you're even there. Uh, some of us... Um, are sure that you're there, um, but in one way or the other, we're, we're, we wrestle with a lot of things, and that's all of us. All of us wrestle with a lot of things. So um, would you show us right now um, both your reality uh, and your goodness, uh, and will you enable us to, to hear wisely? Um, and we may not even know exactly what that request refers to, but will you give us the insight that we most need to grasp with respect to some of these issues that we would kind of like to evade? Thank you. In Jesus' name. Amen. All right, everybody. Um, as you can already tell, a whopper of a reading. Is it just me? Like, does no, did, did nobody kind of read that? Go, oh dear. Um, all right, here's the deal. Uh, so, uh, divorce, money, and hell. <laughs> what could go wrong? Um, and uh, and I'm sure you're very glad that you came to church today. Um, Listen, let me start off by saying, um, the all, so these readings in it unavoidably bring up some really hot topic, hot topic issues, and I'm mindful that there's just no chance that any one sermon is going to be able to address all the questions that are going to come up and, and put them all to rest. So, um, uh, in the, it, like, for instance, at, at the very beginning of the first reading, there's that long story about the dishonest business guy who seems to get commended, um, and a almost seems to be an example for us to follow. I'm not even going to touch that. Um, so there you go. Um, at least I'm honest. Uh, but here's what I am going to do. I, after the service, whether it's that bit or any of the other any of a, the uh, touchy things I am going to talk about, um, if anybody wants to debrief this a little bit, if this brings up questions you want to address, if this brings up uh, objections that you want to, you know, uh, talk about or whatever. I, I'm going to, after chatting and saying hi to people in the back for a minute, um, I'm going to come over here, and if you want to gather here, we'll just talk about it for a few minutes, okay? Still not going to address everything, but we can at least talk it through. Fair? Say, sure. Whatever. Thank you. Appreciate that. And let's come at this with humility and curiosity and charity, okay? Um, 
because here's the deal. One of the many gifts that God, that Jesus gives us, uh, here's one of his gifts. Jesus often addresses questions that we are not wise enough to ask. Jesus often brings up issues that are very important, and yet despite their importance, we often don't think even to ask about these issues because we, they're just not up for us at an experiential level. And today is an example of that. Um, here's one way to frame the question that I want to trace through, at least at mostly the second reading. Here, here's, here's the question. What are the long-term ramifications of our habitual self-centeredness? Or I could say a little bit more subtly, what are the long-term ramifications of our secret and respectable self-centeredness? Or more troublingly, I could put it like this, what are the long-term, actually, what are the eternal ramifications of our secret and respectable self-absorption? And then what's the alternative to the self-absorbed life, and how do we get on that other path? That's the big question uh, that I want to uh, use as a kind of window into the reading. Go to the story... And I want you to look at the second reading and uh, the last big giant paragraph there. Jesus tells a story. Story about a, uh, a rich guy and a guy called Lazarus. Now, keep in mind that Jesus is telling this as a parable. Remember that a parable is a story that opens up a window into a spiritual reality that is otherwise hidden. A parable gives insight in this case, into some of the dynamics, of the, some of the eternal ramifications of, of our lives today, it, it reaches into the realities of what we often call heaven and hell. Now, it's a parable, though, so it's not trying to give us a literal representation of what heaven and hell is like. Nobody knows exactly what heaven and hell is like, but the story, this story, uses uh, images and symbols and metaphors in order to give us real insight into very important truths. The point is not to give us a tour. The point is to give us a very sober warning. And everybody take a deep breath. Verse 19. There was a rich man who was clothed in purple and fine linen and who feasted sumptuously every day. And at his gate was laid a poor man named Lazarus, covered with sores. And he desired to be fed with what fell from the rich man's table. Moreover, even the dogs came and licked his sores. It's a tragic scene. Uh, hits close to home for anybody who lives in this city. So there's a rich guy. We never know his name. Uh, the fact that we never know his name might indicate that his fundamental identity is wrapped up in his wealth. Rich guy, fabulously wealthy, eats at a Michelin-rated restaurant every day. Um, his fashion is fabulous. He's, like, featured in Vogue? <laughs> I don't know. And outside his house is a guy called Lazarus. Um, and Lazarus lives uh, cold and starved and sick and fundamentally invisible to the rich man. The only person that notices Lazarus is the dogs, and even they use him for protein. 
Now, notice how the rich man doesn't notice, except he does notice. He notices his own fashion. He never passes by a mirror without stopping and taking a look. And he notices his food, and he notices fundamentally himself, but he doesn't notice Lazarus. The rich man is self-absorbed, and here let's hit a pause button. Emmanuel, what the Bible calls sin uh, is not just the harm we perpetrate. I, I think everybody agrees that harming people is bad. Sin in the Bible uh, also includes negligence and the failure to do right. And sin is always whispering in my ear that I am the most important thing. I'm the most important thing. I mean, it, it feeds on self-absorption. Now keep that in your mind and watch how that carries with the rich man into the afterlife. So both the rich man and Lazarus die. Rich man, the rich man is in torment in the place of the dead. Doesn't use the word hell, but it's what it's talking about. And Lazarus, on the other hand, is comforted at the right hand of Abraham. Can't get better than, th better than that. And watch how the rich man's self-absorption permeates his eternity. Verse 24. And the rich man called out, Father Abraham, have mercy on me and send Lazarus to dip the end of his finger in some water and cool my tongue, for I am in anguish in this flame. Now, pay attention to how the rich man relates to Lazarus. So remember, in life, Lazarus was invisible. But now in death, Lazarus is all of a sudden very important to this rich man. What changed? Well, what changed is in life, Lazarus was useless to the rich man, and therefore he was invisible. But now in death, everything's different because the rich man's got an unmet need, a felt unmet need, and therefore he notices Lazarus, but he only sees what it is that Lazarus can do for him, what it is he can get out of Lazarus. So it's a little bit like this. It's a little bit like the rich man says, Hey, Father Abraham! Across the unbridgeable chasm. Hey, Father Abraham. It's pretty hot down here, Father Abraham. And I can see that guy, Lazarus, sitting next to you with a cold one. What do you say you tell him to fetch me some water? Because it's the least he can do. Can't you see what I'm going through? Sin only sees what it finds useful. Sin is always mainly looking at the self. And put differently, sin sees very clearly what it wants to consume. And the rich man's self-absorption just runs right through the whole story. He looks at Lazarus and he says, Lazarus is somebody who should be serving me and should be getting me some water. That's the first time he ever recognizes him. Now go back to the story, because in verse 24, he asks for mercy. And for a split second, it looks like there might be something redemptive in the story. But, it, but if you look at his request for mercy, it's not repentance. It's not remorse. He's not looking for pardon. He just wants his discomfort to go away. 
And therefore, even his request for mercy is a thinly veiled form of self-centeredness. And then a little bit later, he asks Abraham, Abraham, you got to send somebody to warn my family. And once again, it sounds like maybe finally there might be something redemptive. Maybe finally he's thinking about somebody else besides himself. But even that ends up being thinly veiled entitlement. Why do I say that? Well, verse 27, he says, Father Abraham, somebody's got to go and warn my family about this. And Father Abraham replies, uh, I don't know what you mean, because that's what Moses and the prophets, that's what we call the Bible, that's what Moses and the prophets are for. Uh, you had the opportunity, you heard them, they're sufficient, uh, the, and you didn't listen to them. And, uh, and the rich man says, no, 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 Father Abraham, you don't understand, you don't understand my family, my family's different. So my family, well, deserves some special treatment, uh, we need a miracle. If somebody comes back from the dead, then, then that'll, that'll get us uh, our attention. And, and Abraham says, no, actually, you're wrong. Uh, you are not as entitled as you feel, and you're more self-deceived than you realize, and your self-absorption, rich man, blinded you to the Bible. And even if somebody comes back from the dead, you won't see, you won't recognize it because you won't, your family won't have found it useful. Because sin only sees what it can use. And what I'm trying to tell you, Emmanuel, everybody breathe. Don't worry, eventually we're going to get someplace good, okay? So it's, hang in there. But what I want you to see is that sin centers the self and can only see what it can use or consume. Now, pause on this reading and go to the very end of the first reading. So flip over to page 8. And in, in the beginning in that reading, uh, you can see a similar theme play out in Jesus' conversation with the Pharisees. So the Pharisees were a super strict religious sect. Uh, and Jesus, not just here, but in a bunch of places, Jesus often points out that underneath the surface of the Pharisees' religiosity, uh, they, were, they were using religion to cloak sin. They were deeply centered on the self underneath their religious veneer. They were centering the self and, importantly, decentering God. And according to Jesus, you could see that play out in their greed and in how they modified marriage. So start with greed. Look at verse 13. Jesus says, No one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. Now, you can kind of see what Jesus is doing there, right? So he's warning them about sin. He's warning them about the centering of the self and the decentering of God. And he's using greed as a particular version of this, an iteration of this. And it, it, it's a little bit like this. Greed is when I decenter God, center myself in its place, and when I center the self, all of a sudden, I'm looking out for something that I can find useful to myself. And if greed's my thing, the thing I find useful is money. And I reach out and I grab it and I earn it and I hoard it and I spend it and I consume it and it's never enough and so I repeat. But while I'm doing that, I can never see a Lazarus. 
because they're not useful. And I can do all of that, and I can still go to church. So now turn over to the second reading, verse 14, which is just the next breath. The Pharisees, who are lovers of money, heard all these things, and they ridiculed him because they didn't find Jesus useful. See, despite all their religious veneer, the Pharisees are on the same road as the rich man. And you can see that in their approach to greed. You can also see that in their approach to marriage. Um, so some of the Pharisees, not all, some of the Pharisees at this time were playing very fast and loose with the doctrine of marriage. And uh, there was this, they had a theory, some of them, uh, that said any man can divorce his wife for any cause. Any cause was a was a, a, a watchword. Now, no woman could divorce her husband for any reason, but any man could divorce his wife for any cause. Now, just everybody, I need you to listen to what I'm about to say. I am aware that every single person in this room has been touched by divorce in different ways. And what I'm about ready to say does not explain every particular of every particular divorce that has impacted you, okay? There's more to biblical teaching about divorce than fits specifically in verse 18 of the second reading. And Jesus talks about it at, at greater length and adds more detail in other places. But I want us to listen to Jesus's point here because what he seems to be doing is he's pushing back on the Pharisees. And he's saying something like this, your religious skill, you're using your religious skill not to obey God's word, and rather you are decentering God, you're centering yourself, and you're, you find divorce, easy divorce, to be a useful tool in your pursuit of self, and what it amounts to, according to Jesus, is a religiously sanctioned adultery. And what I want you to see here is that sin is the decentering of God, the centering of the self in its place. That makes us blind to what we do not find useful. And if you bring that to, for instance, the issue of adultery, which Jesus brings up there, this explains why it is that the adulterer is never thinking about the wife he is betraying. In that moment, she's not useful to him. And it explains why the adulterer isn't thinking about the children whose lives he's shattering. Because they're not useful to him in that moment. Do you, do you know what the adulterer does see? The adulterer sees very clearly the person whom he wants to consume. And he swipes. The rich man felt entitled and wanted Lazarus to service him with a little bit of water. And the adulterer feels entitled in the same way. He's just looking for a different kind of service. And what I want you to see is that the centering of self is the road to hell. And some of us, and all of us, have tasted a bit of that sulfur. 
greed and adultery and religious hypocrisy and a thousand other sins, they all work the same way. They're the centering of the self, the decentering of God, and it wrecks just catastrophic damage in our world. And much of your pain and mine is gathered up in that. But it also, there's a whole other layer to the wreckage and the catastrophe because sin will eventually blind us to God himself. Because again, sin only sees what it finds useful. And therefore, when I've centered the self, I might believe in God theoretically, but I'll only see the bits of God I find useful. And therefore, what comes to my mind when I think about God will end up being a distortion. I'll look at God and I'll only see a distortion. And I'll only be able to see God as something like a genie or a slave to my desires to do my bidding. And I'll treat God like the rich man tries to teach, to use Lazarus. Hey, God, get me a drink. And the problem is that God is not my slave or my genie. He's the center and I'm not. And God doesn't play along with my self-absorbed games. And on the day when I realize that God will not conform to my desires, I will either resent him or I will find him completely invisible. I don't believe in God anymore. Not because there isn't evidence for God, but because I have no longer found him useful and he has vanished. Because sin can only see what it can consume. Now, go back to the rich man and Lazarus. Verse 24, I think that explains the flames. Doesn't mean that there's literal flames in hell. What it means is something like this. Fire consumes. Uh, fire disintegrates. We, we're breathing in the fumes of its disintegration earlier this week. And that's what sin does. And when sin cannot consume somebody else, it'll turn on the self so that fire is an image of the centered self consuming itself in the heat of insatiable desire for forever. And then do you notice the chasm? Verse 26. That's an image of quarantine. Because if I insist on the centering of self and the decentering of God, then one day God will ratify my choice. And he will allow me to go on centering the self forever. But what God will not allow, God will not allow me to continue consuming others for forever. So if I insist upon the centering of the self, then I'll have to do that in quarantine, beyond the unbridgeable chasm alone, where I can consume only myself. Well, you see the eternal ramifications of my self-centeredness? It's heavy. Okay, literally, everybody breathe. <sighs> okay, um, what do we do? Okay, everybody, close your eyes. I'm not going to do anything weird. Close your eyes uh, and, uh, and, and, and imagine your centered self. Now stop it. Just cut it out. Just come on. It doesn't work, does it? If you try to, okay, you can open your eyes. If you can, if you, if you just try to, if you just try hard, you'll just uh, double down and you'll get more self-absorbed. Um, what's the alternative? Look at verse 22. Do you see how Lazarus arrives at heaven? He's carried by the angel. 
to the to Abraham's side, carried like like carried on a litter as if as if he were a king, a prince. Uh, that is an image of grace. Everybody say grace. Everyone who goes to hell goes to hell on their own steam. No one gets to heaven any other way than by carried by grace. And what that means, what does it look like in practice for us? It means three things. It means uh, listening, trusting, and surrendering. Um, first of all, we listen. It begins by listening to God's word. If you look at verse 37, Abraham insists that Moses and the prophets, or what we call the Bible, is sufficient. Now, what that means is something like this. God has spoken. We cannot see God. You have to he uh, see God through your ears. And the decentering of the self happens when we listen to what it is that God has said. And as we listen to God's message, we have to pay attention not only to the bits we immediately resonate with, because the bits that we immediately resonate with might just be the bits of God that we find useful in the moment. We've got to also learn to listen to the bits that kind of jar against us, because when the Bible jars against us, that's very often when we're coming up against the frontier of our growth. And as we listen to God, the decentering of the self and the centering of God begins. But there's more, because as you listen to God's word, what you're going to find is that it is not merely just a list of do's and don'ts and rules and all the things that you fear it might be. What you find is that it's a story. It's a story about God coming to us in the person of Jesus Christ. And Jesus was perfectly God-centered and not centered on the self. And yet on the cross, he died, and as he was dying, he was voluntarily suffering the quarantine from God that our self-centered sin deserves. And not only that, he was also suffering in that moment the disintegrating torment that he did not deserve. Why did he do that? He did that so that you and I could be lifted up by grace out of our self-centeredness and out of its consequences and out of the hell that we are choosing in any given moment, lifted out of that like Lazarus was lifted to heaven. And we are to be lifted up to the Father by grace. And you see, as you listen to that story, and as you see who Jesus is and what he has done, then you will find yourself realizing that Jesus is somebody you can trust. And that's the second thing. You've got to go from listening to trusting. And here's the thing. As you trust Jesus, you can't trust Jesus and center the self at the same time. Just like you can't look forward and backward at the same time. And at the beginning, you will only trust Jesus a little. And your self-centeredness will only be decentered a little. But that's okay, because just a little trust in Jesus is sufficient. As soon as you trust in Jesus, you are already in that moment being carried to the Father. And in time, your trust in mine grows, and it moves from listening to trusting to surrendering. And here's what I mean by surrendering. You'll say something like this, Jesus, you gave all that you are for me. And even now I see that you're carrying me to the Father. And because you gave all that you are for me, I want to give all that I am to you. So here's my money, for instance. Jesus, what does it mean for me to become Jesus-centered in my money? How much do I get to give and to whom may I give? And how can I honor you not only with the money I've got, but with the manner with which I gain it? 
Or in another moment, you're going to bring before Jesus and you're going to say, here's my relationships and my sexuality and my relational history. Jesus, I can see that you gave all that you are for me, and now I want to give all that I am to you. And here's my relational life and my sexual life and my marriage and my desire for marriage and all that goes on with that. Jesus, show me what it looks like to live for your glory. I want you to be the center in every sphere of my life. And friends, as that surrender grows, we get to repeat that process in every area of our life. And as that happens, you will enter a whole new world. You'll enter a world previously that was darkened by your ability only to see yourself. And then all of a sudden, as you surrender to Jesus, it'll be like lights come on. You'll be able to see people that you had previously ignored. Why? Because you'll have the ability to see not only the people that you find useful, but, by, but the people whom you might be able to serve. And in that moment, love. Love will be pouring into you and out through you. And friends, if heaven is a world of self-centered, self-absorption, then heaven is a world of love. And as we receive the love of the Father through Christ and extend the love of the Father through Christ, then in that moment, heaven, though we are not yet there, is already working backwards and breaking into this world. So friends, this is a hard saying, but I want you to hear it and hear Jesus alluring you to a life of trust, of listening, of surrendering, and of tasting now the glories of heaven. Amen. Hello, everyone. My name is Jim Saladin. I'm the rector here at Emmanuel Anglican Church. Uh, our church exists to see and describe and reflect the beauty of Jesus Christ for the flourishing of our city. And I hope this podcast encouraged you in that way towards Christ. If you're here in New York City, we'd love to see you. Please join us on Sundays at 11 a.m. Generosity drives everything we do at Emmanuel. And if you'd like to contribute, please visit www.emmanuelanglicannyc.com give.